0: Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Kreisman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found the flame. Hello, and welcome back to episode three of Beyond Therapy. Today, we're focusing on medical and social perspectives on perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, and we're joined by psychiatric nurse practitioner Michelle Helms. Michelle has been a nurse for over 30 years. She was a women's health nurse practitioner working in obstetrics for almost 10 years prior to becoming a psychiatric nurse practitioner. She holds an additional certification for perinatal mental health through Postpartum Support International, and we'll talk a little bit about them in just a minute. She works as a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner treating women's mood disorders across the lifespan with a specialty focus on women's mood disorders during pregnancy and the postpartum period. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. What a cool combination of experience to have both the women's health and obstetrics and the psychiatric piece too.
1: Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, and, And I think like one of the things that led me to this is just like working in OB, I would find so often that people would come in for their initial OB exam and they would say, well, I stopped that medicine as soon as I found out, you know, or My grandma said, I can't take that when I'm pregnant. So I I stopped it, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, And then what also what I would see is if somebody was on a medication that they wanted to continue on, a lot of times psychiatry would say, well, talk to your OB now because you're pregnant. And then the OB would say, well, talk to your psychiatrist now because you're pregnant. (laughs) And then there was kind of like a real gap in care. And as an OB provider, I would feel comfortable maybe starting somebody on an SSRI, but I didn't feel comfortable bumping up the dose or if it wasn't working or they were having side effects, I really didn't know what to do. And so I found that there was just like a real gap in care for women who were pregnant or postpartum and um, breastfeeding maybe and having anxiety or depression and um, A lot of times they didn't feel comfortable with medication, um, and they didn't have anybody who was really advocating for them in their corner to say that it was okay.
0: Did you find that your psychiatric training bridged that gap around perinatal mood disorders, or was there some additional knowledge base that really was the bridge between the obstetrics piece and the psychiatric piece?
1: Oh my gosh. I am so glad you asked me that because no, it didn't really like my psychiatry program focused on just medication management for any kind of mood disorder, you know, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, but, um, postpartum support international is really, an organization, I cannot say enough good things about them, because they are really that is their whole purpose is to bridge the gap between OB and psychiatry. And I can say I learned so much in that three day training. that. I mean, I feel like I learned more in that training than I did in my whole psychiatry program as far as med management for mood and anxiety disorders during pregnancy. So if anybody is interested in doing that, I mean, they do a three-day, cert- three-day course and then it comes with a lifetime certification after you take a, a test um, and gives you like the PMHC behind your name. Um, but they they're an awesome organization and they have like a lot of um, groups in every state, like around the country. And it really connects you to a big network of people who are also doing the kind of work that I do.
0: What a great resource that sounds like. I can certainly connect from my own counseling training that there can be so many gaps, um, particularly for any sort of, quote unquote, special population, like women, for example, that there's really just not specialized training that takes into account their unique needs. And especially if we think about the unique needs of someone who is going through a pregnancy.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think too, like, it's important to to just say that the language around this has changed a little bit in recent years, like what we used to call postpartum depression is now being referred to as PMADS, which stands for Perinatal Mood and Anxiety Disorders, because as we know, depression doesn't only occur during the postpartum period, but you can develop depression, you can have it prior to pregnancy, it can develop in pregnancy, or during the one year postpartum, and it really PMAD stands for perinatal, which is pregnancy or postpartum mood disorders are like depression, bipolar, even psychosis. Anxiety disorders are encompassing like that whole spectrum of generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, um, OCD, and even PTSD um, can occur like during pregnancy or postpartum. And then, of course, by disorder, that means it gets in the way of your daily functioning because some of these things are normal emotions that we have. Um, But if it's a disorder, that's more something we need to look at as far as, you know, an
0: intervention. So it sounds like pretty much anything that might show up in the DSM could also have special implications when it arises during pregnancy
1: well that's that is the only real difference is the time frame in which it is presenting but as far as diagnose, diagnosing the disorder it's the same exact criteria that you see in the dsm for example for generalized anxiety disorder it's just is it presenting during pregnancy or during that one year postpartum. That's the only real difference.
0: I'm so glad that you mentioned this really broad window for when someone might actually develop symptoms of a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder. I know I at least had the conception ahead of when I actually developed postpartum depression. Uh, I had this understanding that If I were going to have symptoms, it was only going to happen in the first few weeks or months after I had the baby and only after. So I wasn't even looking for symptoms during my pregnancy. I wonder if educating folks about how big this window is, I wonder if that will actually help them to be open to conceptualizing some of their experiences as being Related to a disorder, as opposed to maybe being a function of them just not being a good parent, for example,
1: yeah, and i I mean, I know like there's so much stigma around it too, and just just mental health in general. There's a lot of stigma, and you know we always think that we should be able to mind over matter it, no matter what it is, if it's depression, if it's anxiety, and we feel like if if we're not able to mind over matter it, then there's something wrong with us. Like we're weak or you know we're we're not able to handle it like other people do. And I think also social media plays a lot into it too, because so often, I hear this from new moms all the time. like they feel like they're the only ones struggling. Um, Because they look on social media and all you see is, you know, pictures of people with their new baby and everybody's dressed to the nines and like, you know, everybody's happy and smiling. And so it's very easy to get the perception like everyone else is doing good and I'm the only one over here falling apart.
0: Tell us a little bit about prevalence, especially since it seems like nobody has any problems on social media. Exactly how common are these disorders?
1: Um, The prevalence is actually perinatal mood and anxiety disorders are the most prevalent and underdiagnosed in pregnancy. As far as a pregnancy complication, one in five to seven women and actually one in 10 men can have postpartum depression. And I, I say that because when I first heard about that, I was like, men, what? They haven't been through it. They don't have these crazy hormone changes, you know, but a couple of big studies came out um, on postpartum depression in men. And I'll, I'd like to talk about that too a little bit later, but um, about 400,000 infants a year are born to mothers that have depression Um, making it the most underdiagnosed obstetric complication in the U S and it can affect anybody like socioeconomic status does not, is not protective, you know, and I think we've seen that like a couple celebrities have come out talking about their own experience with postpartum depression. And that that's so good to see, because I think it kind of normalizes it for other people. Um, Alanis Morissette is one of them she's actually a big um, supporter of postpartum support international Serena Williams has talked about her um, experience with postpartum depression so that is always good to see because I think it helps us feel like maybe we're not alone you know and when we have these thoughts we we feel very alone especially if we can't talk about it or don't don't feel like it's it's okay to talk about, you know, it, one of the things that also contributes to is like the assumptions that we have about motherhood. We do so much to prepare for the baby. We get diapers, we get all the, you know, a swing and a bassinet and we get all the stuff, but we don't do a lot to prepare ourselves emotionally because we think it's going to be, be natural, you know, a lot of times people dream about being a mom from the time they're two years old. You know, we have our little babies and we push them around and we think like, Oh, it's, it's instinctual. We won't need to take a break because we're going to just be so in love with being a mom. And plus the baby's going to sleep a lot. So, you know, we'll have plenty of time for ourselves (laughs) and it's going to be wonderful. And then when they don't necessarily have that experience, they feel like maybe maybe I'm not cut out for this, maybe I'm not a good mom, you know, and then it contributes to that like negative self talk and intrusive thoughts about um, their experience about motherhood.
0: I think those statistics are just so staggering to me, you know, this one in five one in seven women uh being impacted by these disorders. I wonder if there is. A systemic piece to how scary it may feel, to how unwilling we may be to talk about these symptoms. I'm thinking about how there is this underlying narrative in American culture, at least, that womanhood and motherhood are somewhat synonymous. So I can't really consider myself to be a good woman and deeper than that, a good person, if I'm not mothering well, or if I'm not loving every minute of it, as you mentioned,
1: and you, it, it makes you question your identity, even because, like, you a lot of times people identify as a woman, a mother, uh, you know whatever they are in their job if they work, um, and when they they don't perceive their experience as being as them being good at that, whatever it is then they start to question like, well, who am I then? Like, maybe I'm not this person that I thought I was.
0: That brings to mind a particular client I had who the only thing she had ever wanted her whole life was to be a mom. She had all kinds of trouble getting pregnant. So she ended up going the IVF route and I think having to do multiple rounds of that even. So that was, of course, an emotional roller coaster. And then when she finally does have her beautiful, healthy baby that she had longed for, she was just hit in the face with a massive depressive episode. And that really just wrecked her understanding of herself as a woman, her understanding of herself as a mom. It really shifted the way she conceptualized her whole self.
1: Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought that up, too, because that is there are things that we see as as far as risk factors for developing a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder and fertility challenges is one of them, as well as um, medical problems during pregnancy. Like if you have gestational diabetes or you have like a complication, blood pressure problem, you have endocrine dysfunction, like thyroid um, problems as well as the ones we think about is like, you know, socioeconomic problems, inadequate support, um, interpersonal violence, financial stress, like those are the ones we generally think about. But um, the medical, the medical challenges also contribute to development of a perinatal mood anxiety disorder. Also, um, if you've had a depression or an anxiety disorder prior to pregnancy, it also puts you at risk for a postpartum depression or anxiety. And, and really when they've looked at these, when they've done studies looking at kind of what is the spectrum of these disorders, like the majority have been postpartum depression, but, um, Most of the time, depression is comorbid with anxiety in these disorders. Like they said, um, when they looked at the spectrum of the disorders, 68% had unipolar depression, but 66% of those also had an anxiety disorder that was comorbid with their depression. 22% were actually bipolar disorder, and then of those, 20% endorse thoughts of self-harm. So that's really significant because that is ultimately what we're trying to prevent, right? Is like maternal mortality. And so, so I think it's important to like screen people when they are, when they are becoming pregnant, like have you had depression or anxiety in the past? A lot of OBs do it during pregnancy, not always on the first visit, Um, but really the, the people that are most in line to notice a perinatal mood anxiety disorder is the pediatrician pediat. If you think about it, like OB, like you deliver, usually if you've had a C-section, you might follow up in two weeks if you had a normal vaginal delivery you probably follow up in 6 weeks and then they don't see you again unless you re- you you know complain of a problem or you need to come in for something but you're going to the pediatrician at 2 weeks at 4 weeks at 6 weeks or 8 weeks you know so those those visits are much more often and the American pediatric association actually does Say um, to to screen moms for postpartum depression. Um, not everybody does it. And then the other thing um, with screening is that we don't screen for anything other than depression. Like my, I remember one patient that I had um, that said to me, you know, my pedi- my um, OB asked me, was I bonding with a baby, and I said yes. But my problem was I was bonding too much. I couldn't stop watching her sleep. I couldn't leave her room. So she had really like a perinatal anxiety disorder. And there's no screening tools for that, you know? Um, I came up with this thing. I call it the one-word psyched And I always... <laughs> I always encourage anybody that is a family member, anybody that's a doula, somebody, you know, if you're going to visit a new mom, a lot of times we say, how are you doing? Um, And we hear things like, well, the baby didn't sleep real good last night, or, you know, I'm trying to breastfeed and she's not latching well, or my nipples are cracked. And we hear all these things, but I always encourage them to say, how are you doing emotionally? Because that one word adds just a whole nother layer. And a lot of times, if you ask somebody that they and they are struggling, they'll just they'll break down.
0: Wow. I am just thinking that if anyone had asked me after either or both of my pregnancies, how I was doing emotionally, this very key word that you mentioned, i would have absolutely ugly cried
1: it's powerful that one word is powerful because a lot of times we don't feel like it's okay to say that we're not doing good you know and i i think of that as like with my my second baby i did okay with my first one i think just every everything was new but then i had my second baby when Um, My first baby was 21 months. And um, I was starting my grad program. So at that point, I was working as a nurse for about 20 years. And I decided I'm going to stop working, just kind of do grad school and be a stay at home mom. And I was like, ooh, this is going to be so great. Like, I'm gonna bake apple pies with the girls and we're gonna have so much fun. (laughs) And I really hated staying at home. And I, I felt like I was trying to do things with other like little mom groups and stuff. And I felt so out of place and I felt like I just couldn't relate to anybody like, you know, talking to me about planning birthday parties and like all these things. And I was just like, I just can't relate to you. I don't, I didn't know what to do with myself if I wasn't Michelle the nurse and I wanted to go back to work so bad. (laughs) But I felt guilty for not
0: loving it. Yes. I so connect with this, this notion that, or the experience rather, of not feeling engaged in the quote-unquote work of mothering, the birthday parties and the cute little lunches and all that sort of thing, and the feeling of isolation as I hear other moms seemingly feeling so joyful about it all. It's interesting because I actually used that depressive way of engaging in motherhood as a way of defining myself as a mother. So I very specifically remember this moment after I had been treated for postpartum, coming out of those symptoms, and I was cutting a little um, piece of cheese. I was cutting like a little dinosaur shape out of the cheese, and I had this clear memory of When I was very symptomatic, thinking about all the little cute lunches uh, that, you know, my kids were probably seeing their friends have at daycare and thinking to myself, well, I'm just not that kind of mom. I'm edgier than that, right? And as I'm sitting there cutting out this little dinosaur cheese shape, I realized it's not that I was that kind of mom. It's that I had just been a depressed mom the whole time.
1: Yes. And I I remember when I went to my OB and I had the screening for postpartum depression and I lied. I was like, no, I'm doing great. Love it.
0: (laughs) What felt at stake that you felt like you needed to hide that?
1: I guess I felt like I should love being a mom, because just like what I talked about, like, it's, it's something that I had always wanted. And at that point, I was about 37. And I felt like I had done like a lot of, you know, I had traveled around, and I had got my party and stage out. And like, I was ready to be a mom. And that's one thing I always wanted to do, you know, and mom of girls, like, you know, but I, and then being a medical professional too, like being a nurse, I felt like maybe they would look down on me, you know,
0: too. Mm. I'm hearing this intersection of identities, right? This intersection of I'm a woman, I'm a nurse, I'm a mother. So all of these roles that have, become synonymous with caregiving, right? So if I'm not loving every minute of being a mother, what does that say about me as someone who has spent a career in caregiving?
1: Right, right. And, and there's some of that too. Like when I had my first daughter, I was trying to breastfeed. I couldn't, I couldn't get her latched. And a lactation consultant came in and she was, you know, trying to help me. And she said to me, well, you know, because you're a nurse. And I was like, no, I don't know. I have, I'm like, I have never done this before. I have no idea what to do, (laughs) but I think there's some of that too. Like, oh, well, she's a nurse. So if she was having something like that, she would know. And she would like, no, no." Um, but I think it's important to mention that um, just having some humility around the cultural piece too. like as therapists or as providers, a lot of times, you know, we feel like we're culturally competent, but you can really never know another person's experience.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned the multicultural piece there because the thought I was having as you were describing the pediatrician as one of the people on the front lines for identifying when someone is potentially at risk or experiencing PMADS, I was thinking about for how many communities it would not feel safe to disclose symptoms like I'm not sleeping or I'm having intrusive thoughts of hurting myself or of hurting the baby, I think anyone would potentially be scared to admit to any of those things. But for moms of color, for example, who have historically terrible experiences with medical communities, how risky it would feel to acknowledge some of those really painful aspects of having any of these disorders.
1: Absolutely, and that that does happen in a lot of cultures. You know, culture influences the way that we explain and report our symptoms of depression or anxiety, and in a lot of cultures, it's not okay to say that you're not okay, um, especially for Black and Brown moms. Like, a lot of times they are raised that you know you don't talk about those things outside of the four walls of your house. Culturally, Black moms are kind of built to be the strength for their family. I mean, they take care of their whole families a lot of times. And so often they're the ones that don't feel like they can say anything because if they can't keep it together, how's how's everybody else going to do?
0: You're naming this cultural piece for A lot of African-American women, in particular, this aspect of being the matriarch, the strong Black woman, I wonder if at least some of that cultural narrative has emerged as a function of medical racism. You mentioned earlier Serena Williams. And I mean, her birth story is just terrifying, right, and is such a potent example of how African American women can tell their doctors they're having pain, they're having odd symptoms, and how much more likely those women's concerns are to be dismissed.
1: I mean, I think the more that they see things like Serena Williams or or that other moms that speak out, um, the more comfortable they will feel. But there is still a very real um, gap there. For for women of Black and Brown communities, because the other thing is too in talking about maternal mortality, pregnancy related deaths are much higher in Black and Brown women. Um, American Indian and Alaskan women are higher than White women, but Black women have almost a three time Higher mortality rate than white women. So that is super significant because, you know, if you hear about somebody dying within your community and, you know, that increases your risk of having a a mood disorder during pregnancy, because, you know, all we hear about all of these stories and it, it affects us.
0: Definitely. So in your experience of working with black and brown moms, How willing have they been to disclose some of these symptoms that they may be experiencing?
1: Right. And so unless you're asking, a lot of times people will not volunteer. And so as much as we can kind of normalizing what we go through as first-time moms or a second-time or third-time or more moms, Um, will help people feel like it's okay to talk about it.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned the maternal mortality piece and how stratified by race that is in the United States. I can only imagine how much more terrifying it may be to have any sort of possible complication during pregnancy as a black or brown woman when there's probably someone you know within your community who has died in childbirth. So I wonder if we can shift gears a little bit and talk about treatment options that are available for perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, especially considering that so many folks are likely concerned about the implications of pharmacological interventions.
1: Yeah, so... um... I talk to women about this a lot, like about, like, first of all, if you are able to bring to the forefront the things that you're feeling, um, what are the treatments, you know, for it? Um, and really when you're, when you're talking ACOG, which is the American College of Gynecology, of Obstetricians and Gynecology and the APA, which is the American Psychiatric Association, got together and they made some guidelines about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And what they said was that for mild to moderate depression, therapy is first line. And so I always encourage that piece of it, because if you look at the studies on anxiety and depression and medication versus therapy, therapy can be as effective as medication. And so like I'm a big proponent for therapy, and that's often a great place to start for somebody who's kind of in that ambivalent stage. Um... But a lot of times, by the by the time somebody's seeing me, they've already, you know, they're having panic attacks, maybe they're not sleeping, and they're kind of beyond that, like they still need therapy. <laughs> but a lot of times, it's to the point where they are needing a medication for intervention.
0: So what might be some of the tipping points when someone does decide to seek out care for their symptoms well
1: a lot of times you know people will think like they have the baby blues and so it's really important to as a therapist or as a a provider to really be able to differentiate between what is the baby blues and what is a depression or anxiety disorder so the baby blues the prevalence of the baby blues is high. It affects 60 to 80% of women universally across cultures. It lasts from two days to two weeks. So this is when hormones are changing a lot. Um, you're having fluid loss because you're losing you know, the fluid that you retained when you were pregnant. So there's a lot of shifts happening. Moms are tearful, they have mood swings, they feel exhausted, but they're mostly happy. So if you if you talk to somebody that has the baby blues, a lot of times they'll describe this, I feel happy, but I don't know why I'm crying all the time. You know, and so that's especially if it's in the first two weeks, that's a pretty good sign that what they're dealing with is the baby blues. And really the treatment for that is just support, getting good sleep and providing some reassurance around like, this is normal, you know, kind of thing. But if they are having symptoms longer than two weeks, um, 15 to 20% of moms, you know, get postpartum depression or another mood disorder. Um, then you really need to look at the DSM criteria. And a lot of times these moms will say like, I just, I feel like I can't cope with this. I don't feel like myself. They have a harder time connecting with the baby, um, harder time taking care of themselves, the infant or the family. They feel isolated. They feel withdrawn. They might feel irritable or agitated. Um, they'll complain of like somatic type symptoms too, like headache, back pain, nausea, that kind of thing. And so like really then if it's beyond that two weeks, looking at the criteria and saying like, could this be something more than the baby blues? It's so important to remind people, and, and this is the the theme of postpartum sy- Um, support international is just reminding moms that you're doing the best you can and that you are not alone and you are not to blame and with help you can get well.
0: That seems like such an important message to reinforce for folks, you know, that this is not your fault, that you're not alone. Shifting gears a little bit. I'm curious how many people will have their first episode of depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, for example, as a function of pregnancy. Right. So they
1: looked at this too, the distribution of um, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Um, And they did a study that looked at 10,000 women and um, 21% had postpartum depression in their first year of pregnancy. And of those 21%, 26% began before pregnancy, 33% had onset during pregnancy, and 40% presented during the postpartum period. So still, you know, a good almost half postpartum, but a good amount had it prior to pregnancy, or during pregnancy. And, and the other thing too, I would like to say like about the LGBTQ community also like has a, a much higher risk of um, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders too, as well as, as dads, like I talked about. So those are also risk factors for um, developing a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. Um, lesbian women had a higher prevalence of PMADs with increased rates of um, suicide. Gay male parents, in a, they did a study in 2017 looking at this, um, had less positive feelings at the end of pregnancy as, a, as compared to lesbian moms. Trans gestational parents, they're still doing research on this, but um, there's a high risk of depression and suicide, higher than just the regular adult average up to three times higher. So that's, it's also important to look at that too, because um, when, we're, when we're working with birthing parents, um, those are also risks. And just to mention again about the dad. So they did a couple big studies, one in 2006 and one in 2010, that said 10% of new fathers scored in the range of moderate to severe depression. So the biggest risk factors for dads are their own personal history of depression or the mom having depression. So the mother's depression also contributed to the risk of the dad having a postpartum mood disorder. Mm -hmm. It looks a little different in dads. Generally, it, it spikes more like three to six months. Um, They tend to be more isolated, distancing themselves, hiding in their man cave, you know, um, playing more video games, not really like interacting, but it's always just kind of important to keep in the back of your mind. If you have somebody that you're seeing and they're saying to you, he doesn't help me at all. You know, he, he doesn't participate in the care of the baby, you know, is it really that, He's just not helping, or could it be that he's dealing with something himself? Because I don't think that's often on our radar.
0: I'm thinking about these two particular groups and groups within those groups, right? As we think about dads who are experiencing postpartum depression, I'm wondering if there is an aspect of role isolation in the development of symptoms in heterosexual men in particular, and as well as gay men. I'm thinking about my own husband, you know, who had a great role model who was very willing and open to split the duties of caregiving in maybe some fairly non traditional ways. But you really don't have to go very far back in time for there to be some very deeply problematic gender-based role distinction. So I wonder if if part of the risk of modern fathering is not having great examples of what it looks like to be a dad. And then in a similar vein, thinking about parents who are also members of LGBTQ plus communities, if there's a similar maybe anxiety, if you don't have examples of what it looks like to parent within those identities
1: yes support is everything having some support is so so important whether you're a new mom whether you're a lesbian mom you know, whether you're a dad and that's one of the reasons too, that I like PSI because they have free support groups that are geared towards the specific group and and they're all free and they're all virtual, which is awesome. So they have a dad's group. They have like black mamas matter. They have an Asian mom's group. They have a lesbian mom's group. They have moms of multiples. Like there's multiple different groups and they're kind of like changing all the time and they happen every week. And the ones for depression and anxiety happen almost every day. So it's a nice resource to direct people to um, because you know if you're seeing them as a therapist on an outpatient basis, usually you're seeing them once a week. And this is something where they if they're having a hard day, they can just jump on and get some support.
0: These groups sound like such an amazing resource, uh, especially as I think about folks who either may not have access to an outpatient therapist or even medication management, as well as people who may be concerned from a stigma perspective of accessing care. It sounds like these groups also offer a certain degree of anonymity. Definitely. And what I tell
1: people, too, is if you don't feel comfortable talking you don't have to get on there and just listen. And sometimes just listening to what other people are going through, again, makes you feel like, wow, somebody else is struggling, too. I'm not alone. I'm not the only one out here. Because it's when you're going through something like that, it's so, so isolating.
0: I wonder if we can shift gears just a little bit to explore what some of the medical interventions are for these disorders, given that There are so many pieces that might complicate the typical treatment for mood and anxiety disorders, things like the state your body may be in hormonally, whether or not you're breastfeeding. Can you speak a little to the medication-based treatments that are available?
1: Yeah. So in talking to new moms about treatments, I always try to emphasize the risk of treatment versus the risk of untreated maternal illness so important because there's no such thing as no exposure exposure always occurs be it to treatment or be it to the illness normally we just think about oh the risk of the medication but what about the risk of no medication what does that look like especially like if you're talking about risks of say somebody has bipolar disorder people with bipolar disorder they are encouraged to continue medication during pregnancy because about 50% of women even on medication will have a relapse of their bipolar disorder during pregnancy and 70% of women with bipolar disorder have relapse if they stop medicine and untreated bipolar disorder is a significant risk for postpartum psychosis. And so that's ultimately, you know, another thing, like what we're trying to prevent. So when you hear about these awful stories in the news about moms killing themselves or moms hurting their baby, these moms don't want to do that, but they be, you can become psychotic. And so one to two in a thousand postpartum women will develop perinatal psychosis. Five percent of them commit suicide and four and a half percent will commit infanticide. Mm -hmm. And so this is hard to talk about and it's hard to think about. Um, But it's so important to screen for uh, bipolar disorder because we want to prevent this from happening. Perinatal psychosis, um, the onset is usually within the first two weeks after delivery, but it can happen later. One of the things I always ask about is intrusive thoughts. Mm -hmm. Intrusive thoughts are like scary or unusual thoughts that moms have. And a lot of times they don't mention it until you ask about it. So if you have a mom that has egocentric thoughts, meaning they bother they're bothersome to her, that is more like a postpartum anxiety, a postpartum depression. Um, But if their thoughts are egotasonic, meaning they think they are reasonable and they feel that they need to act on them, then that is somebody that should really be assessed at a little bit higher level of care um, to make sure that they do not have a postpartum psychosis.
0: It sounds like bipolar disorder is one of the biggest risk factors for developing that more severe postpartum psychosis. i um, curious if there are other factors that also put someone at risk. One of the
1: things I always talk to people about is sleep. Sleep is essential medicine when you are in that postpartum period. Moms will not improve without sleep. And a lot of times if they're trying to breastfeed, they're not sleeping well. They might be getting an hour here or there. Um, medications won't work without sleep. And the magic number is six. So if you can get somebody sleeping at least six hours, everything gets better. Depression gets better. Anxiety gets better. And I talk to people about this too. You'll hear patients that have seen me say, I talked to her and she literally prescribed me sleep. <laughs> but there's, there's actually four principles that I try to get across when I'm talking about this. Prescribing sleep involves four principles. And one is changing the message, like helping moms to view protecting their own sleep as crucial for the health of the whole family, not just them. Because if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. We know this. (laughs) So that's one thing. And then consolidating their sleep. Larger blocks of sleep have a more powerful impact than smaller blocks of sleep. And so there's a lot of stress around breastfeeding. You know, oh, if they're not breastfeeding, they feel like they're not doing a good job as a mom. And I talk to people about this flexing the breast. Sometimes if you are able to go longer periods at night sleeping, you can incorporate a little bit of additional pumping during the day to allow for gradual spacing of sleep at night. And then involving a second person to give like one bottle at night so that you can protect your sleep and you can get, try to get that at least six hours. And however that looks, sometimes it's like taking shifts. Other times it's like, Sleeping in separate rooms with earplugs for a period of time. Um, going to sleep earlier, if the baby's going to sleep at seven, you go to sleep at seven and then you're the one up at one in the morning with the baby, you know, so that you can um kind of get that six hours of sleep, super, super important. You know, I meet with new moms and I tell them, like my job is not to say, your anxiety or depression is not bad enough. You need you need to start with therapy. My job is not to say your depression or anxiety is severe and you need medication. My job is to say these are the guidelines. Therapy is first line. If it's severe or recurrent, you know, medication, if you are suicidal or psychotic, then it's hospital. But My job is just to say these are the risks of medication and these are the risks of not taking medication too. Because like I said, we don't always think about that as being a risk.
0: I love this concept of there's no such thing as no exposure. That is something that I had really never thought about. When I do think about the risks of not treating our perinatal mood disorders, anxiety disorders. The primary things that come to mind are more behavioral, right? So I think about there will be a negative impact to the child if uh, I'm not eating and I'm still trying to breastfeed. There will be a negative impact certainly to the child if I am self-harming or if I'm at a high risk for suicide. But I'm curious if there are other specific neurochemical risks associated with not treating these conditions?
1: I I am so glad you asked that because I get very, very excited. They're actually doing functional MRIs looking at the baby's brain in utero, basically like a video MRI, looking at the brain and the neural connectivity. So they're doing these um, tests and they're looking at the baby's brain development in utero in a mom who has untreated depression or anxiety. So, what does that look like as far as a risk to the baby? And what they're seeing is some decreased connectivity between the amygdala, which is your emotional brain, right? And the prefrontal cortex, which is like your executive function, decision making. And, you know, that is nothing like, oh, the baby's going to come out with a malformation. But what that looks like clinically is more emotional dysregulation in children, um, ADHD, it's important to talk to new moms or pregnant moms, or, you know, if I'm doing preconception counseling, I bring this up also, what is the risk of untreated anxiety or depression, and you kind of have to be cautious in the way that you present it right? Because you don't want to scare somebody either like, oh my God, I had anxiety and now my baby has ADHD. That is not where we're trying to go with this. (laughs) But just reinforcing to moms, if you have anxiety and depression, if it is significant or untreated, there are options for help for you. And if your anxiety and depression is severe, Sometimes a medication is warranted. And sometimes being on medication is the safer option. We don't think about that though.
0: I'm wondering if that focus on the medicine is the only thing that could be harmful potentially. I wonder if that connects back to stigma, this notion that you could get your depression or anxiety under control if you would just, you know, change your behaviors in the right way. So, really, you should only be focused on the risks of taking the medication. I've had so many clients who were super focused only on the risk of taking a medication as they were thinking about treating their perinatal mood or anxiety disorders. And as I'm thinking about that now, I wonder if that is at least in part, a function of stigma and the way that we think about mental illness in a lot of Western cultures. Mental illness is largely conceptualized as a personal failing, as something that could be prevented or treated if we would just do things differently, right? If we would just go out for a walk, if we would just calm down, Lord knows if we could all just calm down, there would be no mental illness. So I wonder if... That way of approaching mental illness has something to do with how reluctant so many people are to take meds for these perinatal mood disorders. Right,
1: right. So really presenting it as, like I said, what are the risks of the medication, but also what are the risks of not taking the medication? And so these treatment decisions have to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis, considering what are the current symptoms? What is the past psychiatric history and the past treatment history? What are the patient's personal and cultural considerations? What about family history? One size does not fit all. um, And really just like exploring those options and, and helping moms to understand that All exposures carry some level of risk. Psychiatric illness can pose a risk to mom and baby, and psychiatric medication can sometimes pose a risk to mom and baby.
0: So what are some of the medication options available, especially as we're considering trying to mitigate the risks of those medications on mom and baby? So there's not one single
1: medication that is necessarily safest or best for use during pregnancy. But we do know that 13% of women ages 12 and over have been on an antidepressant at some point in their life. In addition, 50% of pregnancies are unplanned in the United States. So that tells you that early exposure to these medications has often occurred, which has has given way for a lot of research in this area. And so really in helping helping people determine treatment decisions, it's, again, looking at it at a case-by-case basis. As far as like what have they been on in the past that that has helped them. If somebody has been on a medicine that's helped them in the past, then that's the first thing I try. All of the SSRIs have had the most research in pregnancy. Um, and so that's usually where I go first. But also, you know we have to consider what is the diagnosis, right? Because if they have bipolar disorder, SSRI is not gonna be a good medicine for them. Um, But for anxiety and depression, a lot of the studies have been around SSRIs. These medicines are very safe during pregnancy. One of the questions that I get is what about withdrawal? Mm -hmm. Is my baby going to go through withdrawal? And so I think it's really important too to differentiate between withdrawal and what it looks like for SSRIs, because it's not the same. And so like, there's a term that floats around called neonatal abstinence syndrome. And that term is more what we think of, you know, when we think of withdrawal, what we picture in our head is, you know, the pictures that we've seen of opioid babies, like going through withdrawal. That is not this at all. So, neonatal abstinence syndrome occurs with exposure to opioids. 55 to 94% of babies have neonatal abstinence syndrome with exposure to um, an opioid. Um, The withdrawal that happens with antidepressants is called poor neonatal adaptation syndrome. So, this is... NAS, which is neonatal abstinence syndrome, versus PNAS, which is poor neonatal adaptation syndrome. So the two kind of get confused sometimes, even in the medical realm, but it's two completely different syndromes. So poor neonatal adaptation syndrome happens to about 30% of babies. Not every, every baby experiences it. Um, but it can happen. It lasts between two and fourteen days, and really, what it looks like is a little bit of irritability, crying, maybe difficulty with latch. so what i what I tell moms is like your baby might cry in the first two weeks. <laughs> but the other thing, too, is that with SSRIs if you're breastfeeding, then the baby sort of gets like a slow taper. those, symptoms are much milder. So I think if you if you really phrase it like that there's a little bit more comfortability mm-hmm. around taking a medication during pregnancy and during breastfeeding. Also in general if you're if you're treating somebody during the postpartum period when they are just breastfeeding the risk for exposure during pregnancy is higher because you're getting, it's blood to blood. But if if you're treating somebody um, when they're breastfeeding, then the exposure is much lower, depending on the medication. Like Zoloft and Lexapro, like one to 4% in the breast milk. Prozac is higher, it's like 12%. But if somebody comes to me and they are on Prozac, I do not switch them to another medication because What we also want to do is like minimize exposure and not necessarily exposure to the dose of the medication because dose does not equal exposure when it comes to treating a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. So being on 50 milligrams of Zoloft is not different than being on 200 milligrams of Zoloft when it comes to pregnancy.
0: Does that have to do with the concept of like a therapeutic dose. So it has more to do with how your body may be processing the medication than it has to do with how much medication you're taking.
1: Yeah. And so if you are treating somebody, I always tell people, if you are going to treat with a medication treat to resolution of symptoms because otherwise what you're doing is you're partially treating your symptoms and then the baby is getting exposure to not just the medication but also to the untreated maternal illness. So it's really like a dual exposure then. So always treat to resolution of symptoms um, and going up in dose does not mean any additional exposure.
0: Well, that is certainly Mind-blowing for me personally, because I think prior to having this talk, I would have assumed that if I am putting more medication in my body, that there would be a direct correlation to how much of that medication that my child was getting. So I'd probably be reluctant to up my dose, even if I were still having symptoms. So this feels really critical for clients and patients to be aware of. Right and and so that's
1: that's a lot of the fears because again, you know, sometimes as moms we don't want to eat cabbage because we're we're afraid it'll make our baby gassy much less a medication.
0: I wonder how much that sort of messaging contributes to so many people's reluctance to treat their conditions with medication. Like you mentioned not wanting to eat too much cabbage. I think about all of the instructions and all of the responsibility that I feel like I carried when I was pregnant, there was no simple decision. Everything felt high stakes, whether it was what I was eating, whether it was whether I was sleeping on my side or on my back or what have you. So I wonder if we carry that into our treatment decisions and maybe assume risks are significantly greater than they actually are when it comes to medication.
1: Exactly.
0: Well, I wonder if we can shift gears again and explore some of the ways that non-medical providers, so counselors and therapists, how they can best support folks who are maybe recently diagnosed or potentially qualifying for a diagnosis of some of these pregnancy-related conditions
1: first thing is just reducing the stigma surrounding all of these things and normalizing the feelings that we go through as, as new mothers. Um, And I think a lot of therapists are so good at doing this, but also just having some knowledge around um, what I talked about as far as treatment options, because even as an OB provider, I was not super comfortable With prescribing a medication and so only if it was really really bad Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and so just knowing that there are treatment options that are available and in some cases treating it with a medication can be safer than not treating at all and so like just knowing the impact of maternal stress On depression. You know, we think of dysregulation of the HPA access in our own bodies. But you have to remember like, when your HPA access is dysregulated, you have elevated cortisol levels. Elevated cortisol in utero, you know, at a time when the baby is growing and so vulnerable, it can lead to dysregulation of the fetal HPA access, which, again, I said, can be like increased reactivity distress in childhood or increased vulnerability to mood and anxiety disorders um, in the baby. So just making sure that moms understand that sometimes it's okay and even safer to treat with a medication if that is needed. The other thing is too, in in looking at um, the fetal development. so if you if you have somebody that presents, say, during the second trimester and they have depression or have anxiety, a lot of the risks, even for like if you're looking at a, a benzodiazepine, say, for somebody who is having panic attacks, risks of a benzodiazepine in the first trimester, are risk of, like, cleft palate, cleft lip, Um, and that is, the cleft is developing in the first trimester. So, if you have somebody who's in the second trimester and you're treating them with a medication that could cause a cleft defect, but they are in the second trimester, the baby's cleft is already developed. So at that point it becomes much safer. So it's not it's not just looking at what is the risk of the medication on the pregnancy, but what where are they at in pregnancy, what are their symptoms, what is the risk of the actual medication that you're planning to use, and how high is that risk? For example, if you if you have somebody who um, you want to give a medication to that could potentially cause a cleft defect, even if they're in the first trimester. And the risk of that medication causing that defect is 0.9%, but you know that in the baseline population, that risk is also 0.9%. Then is that a, really a risk of the medication? if it's also seen in the baseline population. So really comparing what is the risk of the medication to what is the risk in the baseline population? Because sometimes, you know, we think of it as the risk of the medication, but also looking at what is the risk if, you, if you're if you not on medication, if you've never been on medication. And so they've looked at this some um, with, with like lithium. Lithium historically has been, Um, linked with a risk of Epstein's anomaly, which is a pretty serious heart defect. Um, So historically, like lithium has not been used in pregnancy, but really some of the newer research that has come out, um, and they've done like meta-analysis looking at the data over like long periods, um, the risk of uh, Epstein's anomaly in the baseline population is two in 2000 and in somebody taking lithium is three in 2000. So when you're comparing that and you also are comparing what is the risk to the patient who has bipolar disorder and stops their lithium, putting them at risk for psychosis, inpatient hospitalization, Mania, not being able to take care of the baby. So really it's it's about looking at a case-by-case basis and what is the best case scenario for the mom and for the baby. And so like the golden rules that I kind of use are to keep it simple when prescribing medications. Like monotherapy is best if you can do it. And don't change what's working. And I do see this happening. Like people, even OBs, sometimes will switch somebody off a medication that's been working for them and say like, you know, go on Zoloft because that's the safest one. Um, And just like kind of keeping in mind that all exposures carry some level of risk, including PMADs and medication, and just kind of looking at the risk versus benefit of relapse of your mood disorder, as well as what are the risks of the medication, you know, and, and if we, if we look at the baseline population, like we know that two to 4% of all pregnancies, medication or no, no medication have a baby with a birth defect. And so what is that in comparison to the medication that we are prescribing, as well as the timing of when we're prescribing it. So there's a lot more that goes into it than just, oh, you can't take that when you're pregnant, or you can take that when you're pregnant.
0: What you're describing here connects so directly to what is a personal soapbox of mine related to counselor education, which is just how important it is for providers to be able to communicate research findings effectively to clients. And I think uh, a lot of counselors maybe go into their master's programs knowing they have to take that research class, but really just wanting to get it over with and then not wanting to have much to do with research beyond that point. And what you're describing here, as you mentioned, the risk for cleft palate, right? if someone is taking a benzo in the first trimester, how that risk is not necessarily, impactfully greater than the risk to a general population. I think when we read things in the news and it says, you know, there's a significantly greater risk for cleft palate, really being able to help clients understand that a statistically significant difference really only means that the shift in risk is not likely due to chance. It doesn't mean that the risk has gone up significantly. Right. Um, One resource that I can tell you that I
1: use a lot is womensmentalhealth.org. It's actually the group out of Mass General, Massachusetts General Hospital um, in Boston. And they are the ones that do a lot of the research on medications in pregnancy they do uh, like a consensus of studies and, and break it down in very easy to digest terms, maybe not so much for the lay population, but definitely for therapists or medical providers to be able to go and like, you know, rather than reading through the whole 12 page study and breaking it down into like, you know, study sample and size and, you know, the, the type of um, study that they used, it kind of breaks it down into like, this is the meat of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So womensmentalhealth.org. And you can look up by, by disorder, by medication. um, And, and that's a super good resource that I use a lot.
0: As you're describing how really complicated the intersection is between understanding psychiatric meds but also understanding fetal development, I'm connecting with how critical it could be for someone to get the right care to see someone who has this perinatal certification or specialization. I'm just thinking about how many psych providers, you know, haven't thought about fetal development since 1984 when they were in year two of med school. So yeah, I'm just hearing how important this particular specialization really is.
1: Exactly. And just and looking at the, the baby's brain in utero in moms who have had uncontrolled depression and some of the things that they saw was like cortical thinning in the prefrontal cortex or decreased connectivity between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, larger amygdala volume. So these are actually, you know, if you want to think about a fetal anomaly as structurally something that we can see, this is something we can't see, but it's still a structural abnormality. And so I don't think, you know, we're still, there's still so much we need to learn about the brain. I mean, we've come so far, but. I think there's still like a lot of research that needs to be done in this area as far as like what does that actually look like and what does it contribute to later in life? Because, you know, I mean, ADHD and, you know, mood disorders are so much more prevalent than they used to be, but it's not that they weren't there before. <laughs> it's just that we didn't talk about it because if you if you think about it like 50 years ago people were still getting hospitalized for depression you know and so you had these and and think about it like my grandmother had eight kids you know she had you know she was anxious you know this was happening but you know what she put on a happy face she never had a problem Everything was always good, you know? And so like, I think you can see that a lot with like the older generation is like, we didn't, they didn't
0: talk about these things, but you know, it was there. It's interesting. You mentioned this generational aspect, uh, something that I've just started doing probably within the last three to four years or so is if I'm meeting with a new client and asking about their family psychiatric history, I'll start by asking, was anyone in your family diagnosed with anything? But then if the answer is no, I'll ask, was there anyone in your family who should have been diagnosed with something? Because we really don't have to go very far back in time before the conversation around mental health and mental illness disappears, whether that's due to stigma and shame, whether that's due to just an absence of language. To describe some of these situations. So, you know, thinking about your grandmother, even if no one ever diagnosed her with anxiety, somebody probably noticed that she had to lock herself in her bedroom every now and then and collect herself. There are indicators generationally, but we have to figure out a way to get at that information when we lack actual diagnostic information
1: exactly i saw this meme not too long ago said um it was like it said 1950 man talking to the doctor and it said um, my wife who has had three children and zero orgasms this year cries a lot and the doctor said obviously she's insane But I mean, I think that kind of captures a little bit of, you know, what women went through. I mean, you know, no birth control, having baby after baby, not being able to leave the house, you know, no time for self-care. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course there was depression. Of course there was anxiety, but nobody talked about it really unless you unless you were manic. You You hear about people. People in your, doing your histories, people will tell you about, well, I remember my grandmother had to be in the hospital because she was manic. That's the kind of stuff you hear about in older populations, because at that point it got to something that they, they couldn't hide anymore.
0: Which then also perpetuates the narrative that it's, if you're going to have a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder, that it's going to be huge. It's going to be super disruptive and you're going to be detached from reality. It's sort of mania or you're fine. Which just perpetuates this narrative that perinatal mood and anxiety disorders are something to be really fearful of, right? That you're either going to be manic and completely detached from reality or you're going to be fine. There's not really a middle ground there.
1: Exactly.
0: (laughs) Well, as we come to the end of our time together today... Um, I always like to wrap up by asking folks how their experience, and in your case, how your lived experience of having postpartum depression, how it's changed you for better or for worse, or maybe for both. I mean, I think everybody's got a
1: story of kind of what led them to the work that they do. Um, but if I think back about like my own experience and You know, for a lot of moms, the first baby is so hard. That was not my experience. But going from one to two, that was rough. And I had so many changes going on at that time, too, as far as like, you know, quitting my job, going to grad school. Um, We were living in Hawaii at the time. And, um, you know, going from a two-person income to a one-person income, I remember not just feeling depressed or anxious, but feeling angry, too. Mm-hmm. I really had, like, some rage. I, I, didn't, I didn't tell anybody about it because I was ashamed. And I, I just thought, well, I guess this is just how it is when you have two kids, <laughs> Um, and so I think a lot of times moms feel that way, like, well, I guess this is just how it is, you know. But I never I never really reached out for treatment and it wasn't really until I started going through the PSI course. I remember when I w- went to the PSI course, I, I flew out to San Diego to go to it and I started listening to people sharing their stories. And it was a very emotional experience. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, I started crying like during the, during the talk because I started realizing that, wow, this happened to me and I didn't even realize it. And, And I was a nurse for 20 years at that point. Why didn't I recognize it in myself? That is kind of what led me to doing this type of work. In addition to just recognizing as I was doing OB care, how um, like the gap, just like what I was talking about, like women would not feel comfortable being on medication or psychiatry would say, Well, talk to your OB and the OB would say they could be on an SSRI. But if it was anything other than that, they were like, Ooh, I don't think so, you know. Um, And so just helping moms to see that there's help available. Mm -hmm. It's okay to say that you're not okay. And you can get better.
0: You can get better. Wow. And just how impactful and empowering and meaningful that message of hope is when it's coming from someone who's actually been there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Helping moms to know that they deserve to enjoy motherhood and every baby deserves a healthy mom. So whatever that looks like for you, if that looks like bottle feeding, because you want to take this medication and you don't want to take the risk, it's okay. If that looks like exclusively breastfeeding and you know, getting your help, having your partner help you and support you however that looks like, that's okay. If you want to do cloth diapers, fine. <laughs> you know, just just helping moms to say like however you want to do it is okay because so much input, you know, from well-meaning family members. From friends, from social media, and we ha- very much have an idea in our head prior to par- parenthood on um, what is the right way to do it. If we can't do it that way for some reason, then we feel like we're not doing it right. And so, like, just helping moms know that the only right way to do something is the way that's right for you and the way that's best for your family as parents a lot of times we always put ourselves on the back burner anyway and so like treating our our depression or anxiety does n- never feels like a high priority until it becomes unmanageable and so usually by the time somebody comes into care they're already there because Because they put it off and they they felt like, well, this is how it is, you know, I should be able to handle this. Um, And so by the time somebody's reaching out for therapy or for medication, it's already gotten pretty extreme. So really, like, you know, when you're doing therapy with somebody who's not pregnant, you know, maybe that could be one of the conversations, like, have you thought about, you know, or if they're maybe in that preconception kind of period, like, you know, bringing up some of these things, like, if this happens, you know, um, and just providing them with a little bit of data, because, again, it's one of those things that people hear about, but they don't ever think it's going to happen to them. These are some resources that you can, um, you can access if you start to feel this way or please reach back out to me if you start to feel this way Um, because some of these these things can happen up to one in five women that's a lot there's a um, another resource um, that I'd like to share it's um, for moms and it's called mycheckonmom.com and it's kind of something for um, moms to fill out like a head of a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder and they can identify who is their support system in what ways can those people support them and so it's a website that they can spell out some of the things that they're needing and feeling and put it sometimes putting it on paper makes it a little bit more real and also can be um, accessed by their family members or whoever is their support to say like, how can I help?
0: Well, I am so grateful for your time and for all of these incredible resources that I will absolutely make sure folks have access to. Um,
1: Awesome. So excited. So happy for for the opportunity. So
0: happy. Well, thanks for being here. Well, I am so grateful for your time today and also for your willingness to share your personal story as well as to share some of these incredible resources which I will make sure are linked out in the show notes so everyone can access them so again just thank you so much for your time today Michelle you're welcome beyond therapy is brought to you by Creesman counseling mental wellness for all visit www.preesman-counseling.com for more information thanks for listening i hear i hear them